I want to introduce the preacher because I think she's ace. <laughs> it's Sarah. Uh, and um, she has been, I mean, she's been a great help to me over the years, but she's been a faithful and committed servant of God to all of us over many years, and she is dearly, dearly loved. So let's really honor her as she comes to bring the word of God to us. <laughs> Well, that makes things quite awkward, doesn't it? Because today's subject is humility. And I kind of feel I might have set myself up for a fall here. Particularly as the first quote that I have is from Timothy Keller, and it says, Humility is so shy, if you begin talking about it, it leaves. So we'll see where we go this morning, and uh, yeah, hold on to your hats. So we're carrying on actually in our um, Exile and Eternity uh, series, and we're still in Daniel. And one of the reasons that I really wanted to um, preach on this subject, yes, I chose to set myself up for a fall, is not because I believe that I have achieved anything in the humility stakes, but because I value it really highly. And I think it's something that we should all aspire to. And although this is actually about um, humility and leadership, because we're looking at Belshazzar, um, who was a leader and a king, actually humility is something that we need in every, every part of our lives. And although we are kind of in first leg territory in some ways, I'm hoping that we might see how, if we get the basics right, we can move into second leg territory. So... So at the end of Daniel 4, which is where um, Dan left us, uh, we were looking at King Nebuchadnezzar, and we'll see a bit more of his story later on. Um, but this is how uh, Daniel 4 ends, at verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exult and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And then we get to Daniel 5, and it all starts to go a bit pear-shaped. I'm just going to give you a bit of the story, and then we'll read the second half of it. But let's set the scene here. King Belshazzar has um, inherited the kingdom from, um, from Nebuchadnezzar. And at the points that we see him in Daniel 5, he is partying and carousing with a thousand of his subjects, with his wives and his concubines. They're having a, a really big party, but what he doesn't have is a good memory. And they decide, Belshazzar decides, wouldn't it be a great idea to impress people even more? I'm going to go and get the gold and the silver that was from the temple. So it's from the temple of the guys that had been um, exiled. Um, not only were they exiled, the Israelites, but the temples were plundered and all the sacred silver and gold was um, brought to Babylon. And now they've decided they're just going to abuse it. They're just going to use it to eat and drink and they don't really care anything about it. And then, as if that wasn't enough, they decide that they're now going to praise some gods Gods of silver, gods of gold, gods of wood. And at this point, our God has had enough. So what he does is he sends some fingers. Note, they're just fingers. It wasn't a hand. 
just fingers to write on the wall. And then we go through the usual hunt for the wise men. It's become a bit of a theme throughout Daniel. Where are the wise men? Where are the people that interpret this? Where are they all? And eventually, the, the king's mother, no, the queen's mother, says, you need Daniel. He knows what's going on. He's a man of God. He'll interpret this writing. And so Daniel comes and he turns down all the king's extravagant gestures. He's really not interested. All he wants to do is to deliver what he's there to deliver. And he isn't really interested in all the posturing and the extravagance. So we're going to pick it up from verse 18 of Daniel 5. And this is Daniel is now talking um, to Belshazzar. Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, majesty, glory and honour to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He made him so great that people of all races and nations and languages trembled before him in fear. He killed those he wanted to kill and he spared those he wanted to spare. He honoured those he wanted to honour and he disgraced those he wanted to disgrace. But when his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven from human society. He was given the mind of a wild animal and he lived among the wild donkeys. He ate grass like a cow and he was drenched with the dew of heaven until he learned that the most high God rules over all the kingdoms of the world and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. You are his successor, Belshazzar, and you knew all this. And yet you have not humbled yourself, for you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven and have had these cups from his temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all but you have not honoured the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. So God has sent this hand to write this message. This is the message that was written. Mene, mene, tekel and parsin. Sounds a bit like a nursery rhyme, doesn't it? This is what the words mean. Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed. You have been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. Parsin means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Any Persians in the room? Because God, <laughs> God gave the kingdom to them. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was dressed in purple robes. A gold chain was hung round his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Babylon king, was killed. So Belshazzar's demise. He had not learnt from history. He had a very short memory. He was full of himself. He was overconfident. He was complacent. And he was all about the moment of pleasure. He was not connected to anyone. He did what he wanted. He had all those people in the room, but there was nobody there to say, hang on, Belshazzar, what do you think you're doing? And if you notice, it wasn't an angel that came to write on the wall. It wasn't even a hand that came to write on the wall. It says it was 
fingers that came to write on the wall. That, to me, is even more sinister. But it also speaks to me of Belshazzar's state, his disconnection, that it was just two fingers that came. There was nothing even connected to it. And for me, that gives me a little clue as to how Belshazzar was, was postured, what he was doing. And he's all about impressing those around him. And not only that, for all that bluster and all that confidence and all that wealth and all those parties, he was isolated and fragile. In verse 6, it says, his face turned pale. This is when the fingers appeared. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Do you know, it doesn't mention anybody else being scared. Just Belshazzar, because he was in a fragile state. You know, building alone, standing on your own pedestal is a lonely and scary place to be because he knew that it could come crashing down at any moment. He knew that what he'd built was just a front, really. There was no substance to it. There was no foundation to it. And somewhere along the line, all humility had left Belshazzar. So we can learn some lessons from him. And hopefully we won't end up in the same place as him. Well, not as kings, because that's not going to happen anyway. But hopefully, we don't want to end up in that place where we are lonely and scared and fragile. And so we're looking at humility. So we think about, well, what, what is humility? I can tell you what it's not. Humility is not a lack of ambition. It's okay to be ambitious, but we just have to look at our motives and how we're going about what we're achieving and how we're going about getting what we want. It's not about a lack of power. It's all about what we do with the power. And it's not about resignation, capitulation, just rolling over and saying, okay, you get on with it. It might be, but it's not all about that. And it's not about weakness. Tim Keller talks about the bravery of humility. And it takes a brave person to realise that the world doesn't revolve around them and they're not indispensable. C.S. Lewis, that wonderful writer and theologian, he wrote that a humble man will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. So we might ask, how can we be humble? I'm not sure that humility works like that because humility is a bit like the soap in the bath. You know, when you lose the bar of soap in the bath and the minute you just think you've got it in your fingers and it's gone again. So asking ourselves, how can I be humble, is, is quite a tricky question because we've already turned ourselves inward and we've probably just lost it. But I think it's more subtle than that. I think we can learn how to cultivate and tend humility, how to lean into it, how we can allow ourselves to be moulded by it, how we can develop practices that help us to facilitate humility. And hopefully it will become a part of us. So I've just got four things. There are loads of things we can do to cultivate humility. You know, we could be all day discussing them. I've just gone for four things you'll be happy to hear. Um, 
that I think will, will help us to, to lean into to humility. And the first one, which is such a lesson from Belshazzar, is proximity. That actually we need to live alongside people. We need to let people see the real side of us. We're not leading from above. We're leading from within. We're together in this. You know, in John 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And he doesn't sweep in to get an Instagrammable moment. You know, his motive is to say to them, here's an example of how to do things. Do as I'm doing, but let me do it first and I'll show you how it goes. People have to be able to see the real us. I had a visit recently, I had a, a week off work and um, had a visit from my friend Kat and her girls. And at the moment, she just knocked on the door and dropped in. Love it when people drop in, it was great. I was doing some cooking and some preparation for Christmas. I was up to my elbows in dried fruit. And also, the kettle had broken. So when Kat arrived, I'm like, would you like a drink? I'm going to have to boil water in a pan on the stove, and there isn't really any surface in the kitchen that's not full of stuff because I'm in the middle of this. But do you know what? I loved it. I'd much rather somebody saw me up to my ears in dried fruit and broken kettles than ever would arrange something. I like my house to be in order, but it doesn't have to be in order for people to come round. We don't have to have everything perfect for people to come round. I remember we were actually once in the middle of a, a, a considerable confrontation when the Christmas tree had been removed <laughs> from our house without the strategy that I had suggested, which was wrapping it in a sheet. There was, you could have cut the tension with a knife. And into that situation arrived Dan and Ruth. They proceeded to be very quiet, and they just cleared up the pine needles. And do you know what? They saw the real us. It wasn't going well, but what did they do? They loved us anyway, and they got stuck in. And that's what real relationship's about, that we have to live alongside each other. We, we can't live those lives that don't let people in. I remember many years ago, somebody saying to me, well, of course, you can't really be proper friends with a leader's wife because it's when we didn't have female leaders, we only had leaders' wives, um, leaders and leaders' wives. You can't really be proper friends with a leader because they're leaders. And, you know, they kind of need to maintain that. And it's like, well, I actually don't subscribe to that at all. I'm not going to air my dirty washing, but actually I want you to see the real me and I want you to know that I'm authentic. And the journalist and author, Kate, uh, Caitlin Beattie, she said that as leaders, we should commit to lives of proximity, where we can be truly known and truly loved all at the same time. This is Christian friendship. How simple is that? We'll boil it down to, let's make friends with people. It's designed to keep us humble and grounded and is especially important for people in positions of power. So if you see people in positions of power and they seem a bit standoffish, then maybe it's time to get alongside them and see what they're really about. Belshazzar had no one to challenge him. He just did whatever he wanted. And to love somebody well, you need to be able to challenge them. Second thing, remember the cross. Now, this has come up this morning. We are saved by grace. 
This is where we can move from the first leg into the second leg because we are saved by grace. This is what it says in Ephesians 2 verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast. Do you know, on the one hand, we are God's handiwork. And I don't know how this works, but we have been seated with him in heavenly places. Now that keeps us secure. If we know where we come from, it keeps us secure. On the other hand, it's not through anything we did, and that keeps us humble. And we hold the two in tension. Because we didn't achieve anything, Jesus did. And the thing about Belshazzar was, he didn't really achieve anything either. He inherited a kingdom because of his family, not because of anything he did. He wasn't voted king, he didn't pass the king's exam, and his downfall was his sense of entitlement. But it's all about what Jesus has done. You know, Jesus knew that he had all the power, he just didn't act like it. Third thing, this has come up a lot lately, one of my favourites, gratitude. Gratitude and awe. Richard Rathod was talking about gratitude a couple of weeks ago um, and about how it is the antidote to many things. Gratitude keeps me grounded. I remember during lockdown, um, and it it was an anxious time, wasn't it? I don't even like thinking about lockdown. It was just horrible. But I remember every night going to bed and lying in bed and just thanking God that I'd got a bed to sleep in. Thanking God that I was safe. Thanking God that I'd got a house to be locked down in. Thanking God that I'd got a garden. Thanking God that I could get out of the house. And all those kind of basic things became so important. And it was just, it was what kept me going was just to be able to thank God for those things. And gratitude helps us to remember Jehovah Jireh. It helps us to remember who our provider is. And when we were in our family hub this week, this came up in discussion. And Hannah Tower, who was in our family hub, she said this, I thought this was quite profound. She said, you can choose who you attribute your achievements to. And you know, you might be the brightest person, you might have the best job, you might have a beautiful house and a beautiful garden. And who do you attribute those achievements to? On the way down, Brenda and I were talking about um, work and success. And I basically asked him what made him successful, because he is a brilliant salesman, I have to say. And he said what I thought he would say, which was, it was just solid hard work. And you could say, well, Brenda's a great salesman, isn't he, because of solid hard work. No, God gave him that ability. We choose to be grateful and to attribute whatever God has given us. We choose to attribute that to our amazing God. We have a choice. You have a choice who you attribute what you have to. And King David, 
In the Old Testament, King David was the king of the Israelites and God made a covenant with him and God promised to establish a kingdom forever and Jesus was a direct descendant of King David. And straight after um, God has made this covenant with King David in 2 Samuel 7.18, King David says this, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And I find myself saying that to God sometimes. Who am I, O God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And it's so important that we have that gratitude and we have that sense of awe. God, that you would do this for me. And in Hebrews 12, it says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot Be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Our worship needs to show reverence and awe. And every so often we get into what Jesus has done for me or my state or where I'm at. But actually there just needs to be room sometimes for just like, God, you are awesome. You are incredible. You are the most high God. And gratitude and awe will keep us grounded. It will help us to remember where we've come from. Belshazzar had no awe. He was presumptuous. And you know what's really tragic about that? God would have given it to him anyway. It says in verse 18, the most high God gave sovereignty, majesty, glory and honour to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. And we know Nebuchadnezzar messed it up, but God gave him those things and God was happy to give those things to Belshazzar. Is all he wanted was an acknowledgement. He wanted their thanks. He wanted their gratitude. He wanted them to acknowledge that everything they had had come from the most high God and they didn't do it. And Belshazzar died as a result. And the last thing is motives. Let's take stock every so often of our motives. When I was a student, I was was 20 years old, and I went to work for IBM, a big computer company in Leeds. And I worked on the top floor, and we shared that floor with the restaurant. The restaurant was on the top floor as well. And I got to know the restaurant staff quite well, because they were... They were just round the corner from me. And they would make this delicious lemon mousse, which I really, really liked. And I was really friendly with them. And I discovered that if I was really friendly with them, they'd probably make me more lemon mousse. (laughs) And then they'd probably make something else that I quite liked. And at the tender age of 20, I worked out that if you're nice to people, they'll do stuff for you. (laughs) And that is very true. And... That's okay to an extent if you want a lemon pudding or you're trying to get your money back at customer services or whatever, or you're trying to complain in a restaurant, be nice to people and they'll do nice things for you. But if that is a value that you live by, it will become manipulation. Because if our motive is always, well, if I'm nice to that person, I can get what I want. If I'm nice to that person, they'll do something for me. I don't think that's what Jesus did. It says in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. Our motivation is that we are so loved that we too can love. And that means that when God shows you something, maybe it's uh, 
something that you want. It may be something that God's promised you. I've seen things before that God has shown me that I would do or that he would um, give me. I don't have to push for those things. I don't have to try and drive those things on. I just have to wait. Because if God has said something to you, if you've heard from God rather than just made it up, if you've heard from God, then just wait. Because God will give you what you don't need to strive. Just wait, God. God will give it you. And Jesus' motive was that he saw what the Father was doing and he did the same thing. And so let our motive be that we've been loved first, not because we want to get something out of somebody. Let our motive be for the greater good. You know, it says in Ecclesiastes 3 that God has set eternity in our hearts. So our motive is not for short-term personal gain. It's for the kingdom of God. It's for eternity. It's forever. It's for the greater good. It's for the chance maybe to bless someone. It's what we do that nobody else knows about. And I, because of the position that I hold, both as an administrator and as a church leader, I get to see some of the fantastic things that some of you guys do. And I find that humbling. I get to see sometimes the gifts of money that are given. I hear about um, the good deeds that are done. I was just in the kitchen yesterday morning and I I could hear a group of people talking about the food they're cooking for a lady in need. And, oh, well, she can't have this and she can't have that, but we can do this for her. And I've done that, so are you doing that? Because we don't want to repeat. This was pure love. Love for the, the... Nobody knows this lady. She's a friend of a friend. She's not a member of the church, but there's a group of people in the kitchen who are just talking about loving this lady. Um, They probably didn't even know that I was listening. Nobody else knows about it. But there they are, just doing that for someone. And I know that we as a church are really good at that. And that our motivation is that we are loved first. So how do we know that we're humble? Well, it's an unanswerable question, isn't it? Because it turns us inward and it immediately becomes counterproductive. It's like the soap in the bath. The closest we can get, I think, is what it says in Romans 12, verse 3, which is, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. We're never going to achieve humility. It's not a level we get to or a target we hit. It's kind of a thread, a flavour, a fragrance. And sometimes the thread gets broken and sometimes the flavour isn't so good and sometimes the fragrance fades. But you know, by the grace of God, we can get that back. We can just go back. We can take that time to just assess ourselves and see where we're at. We can check in every so often with ourselves and see what adjustments we need to make. And because of the grace, we can keep doing that. We can keep doing that. We can keep doing that. And that's what takes us into leg two, Because once you've got leg one right, and when you're not worried, when you're secure, when you don't have to worry about, am I doing it right, then that frees you up to think, who do I need to pray for? What's God saying to me? Where do I need to move today? Where Where do I need to reach out? So let's just recap. How are our connections? How are our friendships? We'll remember the cross. We'll remember that we're seated in heavenly places, but it's all about what Jesus has done. We're grateful and we are in awe, even of everyday blessings. And why are we doing what we're doing? 
We love because Jesus first loved us. And I'll leave you this, with this quote. This is from a man called Cornelius Plantinga. Great name. He's an American theologian. And this, I find this quite heartbreaking, this quote, in many ways. I'm very uplifting at the same time, because when I think of Belshazzar in the light of this, I realise how bleak his life was. I realise how, despite his riches, his many wives and his concubines, he was proud. And this is the reason. A person with real humility knows how much they are loved.